You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Marco. Sean. I'm uh, preparing to go back to school. Yeah? yeah. The first day? I'm, I'm going to wait. Though. I'm going to wait till 2030. <laughs> go back. I think there's going to be some good, some good things coming there. A lot of, lot of pressure there. You're going to build up that nervous moment, your first day of school, it's right? My first day of school with my lunch pad, exactly. Yeah, I, I hope you're going to repack the fresh lunch every day because you're going to wait 2030. It's going to get a little stale, right? Yeah, then again, who knows what you're going to eat in 2030? I'm going to, I'm packing now the, uh, the cheese whiz with the little cracker thing. <laughs> so it, it'll certainly last until then. That and the Twinkie. That's the difference between me being Italian and growing up there and you being American. Like my my meal would have been completely different in school. <laughs> Probably not pizza, but eh, close enough. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not Those talking about days. food here. I'm always so, talking about food. I know. And it's audio okay. signal. So this is our channel where we can talk about whatever we want. It doesn't have to be technology or society or cybersecurity in particular, because we got plenty of channel for that. But uh I think today we're going to actually talk a little bit about technology and society for sure, because uh, it's basic of uh, education is the basic of our society, or at least it should be even more than what it is from my perspective. So I'm always happy to talk about education and, uh, and make it better. I'm not a big fan of the way you are right now. So, Yeah, no, there's definitely room for improvement. And as you noted, Marco, I mean, technology is something we all have to learn as well. So uh, we have to prepare more people to be prepared for that. But uh, enough about us rambling and me talking about my lunch pail. Let's uh, <laughs> let's introduce our guest, Mike Yates, who uh, who put put a blog or a LinkedIn post together talking about what the future of schools will be in 2030. That's why I pulled the 2030 out of the air. It wasn't. Uh, wasn't meaningless. There was some be meaning behind it. Mike, uh, thanks for putting that post together. It was an inspiring post, uh, an intriguing post, and we want to get into that and more as we as we talk to you today. But first, uh, a few moments to give us some insight into who Mike is. Yeah, thanks. Um, happy to be here. So essentially, I am just a kid who hated school growing up, 
who made a career out of that. Like I, I thought school was whack, but I also grew up with this sort of reverence for education and what it could do for me um, and what it could do for people like me. I, I come from a family of educators, very much so like as a, it's a part of my lineage. So uh, in some ways, like I'm continuing in the family business, but not in the same way that it had been done <laughs> in, in any way previously. I'm trying to hack education in some in some in some way. Like, so in some ways, hacking education. In some ways, just doing what I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I think a lot of like what's been done in education for years and years doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially not contextually. But we do it because we've always done it. So. Uh, in some senses, trying to hack, in some senses, uh, trying to make us uh, do what makes sense. So let me let me put a thought out there because it's a thought that I had for a very long time, and I come from sociology background, so I think about this stuff. And you know, I remember studying a little bit of the education system as well. And what, what I think is this: I want to connect it with technology. Go figure that, Sean. <laughs> I'm going to go there right now. When I was a kid, I was going to school. It was different from what my parents and grandparents did, but it wasn't that that different. I mean, the model was still there. Maybe the curriculum was changing, but, you know, we were still sitting in the class. It was a one-on-one. What I'm saying is technology wasn't there. And now, you know, it started to change quite a bit compared with what our parents did and, and our our children right now are completely different in, in situation with technology. And I'm even thinking what you envision for 2030 must be even, even more than that. So what, what's your take on that, on that technological acceleration and how it really is pushing, or at least it should push the change in the way we do school? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing that's, that's notable is that like, um, you know, a lot of people will argue like, oh yeah, there's definitely been changes, but any change that's been made to education in the last hundred years has actually been minuscule, like really, really minuscule. So in comparison, like when you think about tech, in comparison to how fast technology grows and, and in comparison to how fast the field moves, education moves at a snail's pace, right? Like it is, uh, d- uh, the, the example I'll give you is that People in education are just starting to latch on to virtual reality as the metaverse becomes a reality in the world. Because education is so far behind, grasping on the VR and augmented reality makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're we're moving in the right direction. But in in actuality, we're about 10 years behind on on that front alone. Um, You know, and, and so I think, I think technology should drive a large portion of the way that education catches up, so to speak, or the way that education chooses to modernize itself. Um, but like, also, like, Marco, I too have a sociology background, like, so it's how I view the world. So like, when you look at educators as a group of people that show similar patterns, right? Like, I, I am, I am hearing the same things that I heard when I was five years old. When I was a kid, I remember playing the Oregon Trail and feeling so excited that I could play Oregon Trail with somebody in Ohio or somebody across the country because of the internet. And I literally had teachers telling me, well, we don't know that the internet's going to be around when you're an adult. And I'm like, huh? Like, I remember, like, Fail. I remember, right. You, like, they nailed it. They yeah. totally nailed it. <laughs> right. Like, I remember in 2007, uh, 2006, when the iPhone came out, 
I remember teachers saying, you won't always have a calculator with you when you grow up. And I, I, have, I have a supercomputer in my pocket, like at all times. And that's obsolete, right? <laughs> like, like, I hear the same thing about the metaverse. Oh, like, we don't know if this metaverse is going to be around. And so like as a group, the, the qualitative data tells me that like, that like we don't follow the trends of like we don't we're, teachers are not good at looking into the future and forecasting. And this is essentially why I wrote this article is because teachers often lack the skill of, of forecasting and looking future forward, which is why I, I actually this is going to upset some people. But I argue that most teachers are not going to become good entrepreneurs, even though there are large swaths of content saying that like teaching and entrepreneurship is like a one-to-one match. It is not at all a one-to-one match. The great teachers, which there are very few of, great teachers have the ability to look into the future and say, ah, here's what skills I will cherry pick and, and pull backwards. So I think, I think that process, like that's what it takes to be successful in tech. As somebody who's worked in tech as well, like it takes like looking at the market, not as it is, but as it will be and building that product, right? Like building YouTube because you know that people are going to be their phones and their computer, right? Like building Uber, being in the car business, not the taxi business, being in the, the moving of products, goods, and humans business, not, not the taxi, right? Like that's what it takes. And I, I just, I question uh, the educator's commitment to do that. Well, it's a it's an interesting because I'm I'm thinking about this very differently already, and I'm, we haven't even really got into it. But I guess the, the the goal for a teacher is to take some set of material that's going to give some information to a student that they can then, well, I guess first pass the class so the so the uh, school district can get their money, right? And then and then hopefully use that for uh, for a future and whatever career they choose to. Uh, career path they choose to take i'm thinking about the business world where as a leader or a manager we have to rally a team and and there's interaction and there there's actually a team of of people and and functions within the groups and and i guess it's very different right so we kind of learn as we go in the job and it's very different in school where it's a a teacher with a prepackaged set of stuff just dropping it onto the kids send them home with a ton of homework and uh, come back, review it and do it again. So you talk about the, the, the physical structure of the class. I'm wondering if maybe if you can kind of touch on that to start things off, because what has to change to kind of change things up dramatically that we're not just sitting there as students taking stuff in from, from a teacher. Yeah. I think, I think the hard, the hard answer is that what has to change is the purpose of school, Right. Um, like the purpose of school is just like asking any question about purpose in any industry. You're, it's going to vary widely depending on who you ask. Uh, normally the divisions that I see is it varies widely based on age. Um, like an older professional will tell you, like an older teacher will probably tell you like, oh, it's to produce like good citizens who can get good jobs. Right. And then a younger teacher will generally say like, ah, it's to produce good human beings. Right. And, they, and that sort of like filters the burden that they carry. I, I think I think that school buildings have to they have to look drastically different um, and they have to widely vary based on what the purpose and goal of that school is. Um, in, in the article, I use three very different examples. Um, 
and and for for very specific reasons. So Alpha, that's a school that I helped build. Alpha is inside of an old concert venue because Alpha doesn't have lecture, right? So you can you can build something that looks like a co-working space because there's no lecture. You don't have the same the purpose of the school and the function of the school is different. So you don't have to have individual classrooms. You don't have to have a library. Like all the things that that you like if you ask the hundred people, like what what are the things that every school has to have? We don't have to have that there because the purpose is different at Alpha. And then I use the example of Kodiak High School, which is just this very modern, like interesting take on a traditional school. Um, and the reason why I listed that one is because there are some concessions that you have to make as an ed innovator, right? So like when I was uh, building Alpha, one of the concessions that we made was that we will never be able to build a school where the state of Texas will not let us teach math. Or sorry, will let us not teach math, right? Like like we have to teach the the, the stuff that we most of us would agree is not even that important all the time, right? But we had to organize our school day in a way to where we could optimize for what we really did think was important. So we used adaptive learning software, which is something that I also wrote about in this article, to outsource the direct instruction. But it also sped up the process so that we could spend more time doing the things that everybody loves and enjoys, like life skills and building drones and robots and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that like when I look at an example like Kodiak High School in the physical space of school, there are some concessions that you have to make. And one of them is that I don't think the public school system will ever die, right? Like, I, I don't think the traditional school system ever goes away, nor should it, right? Like, like there are people, I am a product of a free public school education. And had I not had a free public school education with teachers that really cared at one point in my life, then I don't know where I would end up today. I am a product of a state university, right? So I think that those sort of levels are are important to take stock of. And I'll even go, like, I'll even give you more of a hot take. When you look at school, when you look at the, the, the landscape of school sociologically, like, and when you look at it with a business mind as a product, the public school system is, it's the freemium, but it's the free level of, of membership. And when you get the free level of membership, you shouldn't expect all of the premium features, right? But any good product manager, any good product designer will tell you that free version should be pretty good. It should be good enough to capture most of the market. The problem is, is that we haven't, in terms of design, structure, purpose, the traditional public school system has not done enough to build out that free tier to where it actually works and is valuable for most people. Right. So this is like this is like a product roadmap where you can't even get people through the door because the free version sucks so bad. Why would they ever pay for something? You know, so I, I think about the school building in that way. And I, that's why I think Kodiak is a great example. But the last one, Tacoma School of the Arts, this is the one that like if you're listening to this podcast, I really think you should like go look the school up and key in on this. And I hadn't learned about this school back. I don't even I think they were probably newly founded anyway. But Tacoma School of the Arts is a school, uh, and I actually believe this is a, it's a part of the public school district in Tacoma, Washington, but it exists in multiple buildings downtown. They've really expanded on the idea, and not like in a boring college kind of way. Like these are like public spaces downtown that they exist in, and you have students that are like literally going in between buildings, um, not like college, but like real life, right? Um, a greater example of this that I will shout out to the end of the earth is called Embark in Denver. Embark Education is a school that owns a bike shop and a coffee shop 
and like a little creative co-working studio. The revenue from those businesses literally funds the school and ha- and and creates a tuition-free micro school. And so if you go to North Denver, where Embark is, I just visited there, it was incredible. You literally go buy coffee and that process is helping to finance this incredible education experience that's not happening next door. It's happening in the coffee shop, right? Like, like the kids are like around the corner in the coffee shop. Um, that to me, that's where I want school to be in 2030, right? Where, where community, business, education, all are sort of like you blur the lines between them. Right. Like I, I didn't write about this in this article because this is sort of a new revelation of mine, but blurring the lines between community school and business, I think is necessary just as it's necessary to blur the lines between high school and college. Right. Like, like that's the way the world is moving with, with the advent of like boot camps, right? Like if I can go to Lambda school, I, I don't know what the new name is now, but if I can go to a tech, a tech boot camp and learn to code and get a job that pays me 65 K out the gate, why would I go to college? Right. So we have to figure out ways to blur the lines between the two to create valuable like on ramps and experiences for young people. So I think the school building, like the physical building is like is where you, where you can start to do that. And that's what I think like Tacoma School of the Arts and like Embark Education, like schools like that. That's what they do. They blur those lines. And I think it's necessary. Well, that's that's really cool. And it makes me think a lot about, yeah, the, the, the freemium model. And, and then I connect it with the virtual world on how you can open this space it doesn't need to be a physical space. I mean, yeah, sure. We, especially after these two years, we we want to see the kids going back to school. We want to go back out and 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 go in the library and all that kind of stuff. But there is also the opportunity where technology kicks in. Then then you can allow people to get that kind of education and the kind of environment, even if they are really far away, even if they don't have access to that. So that that's a democratic process when dig- digitalization is really helping. Um, I'm going to bring you back a little bit, though, Who, with a question, which is who makes this decision? Because here in the U.S., you have the private and you have the public. And if, if the private are the only one that can do this kind of initiative and make money as they become business, which I have to say I, I freaking love it as, a, as an idea, as a concept, and, and I'm glad to see somebody's doing it, then the divide is going to get even even bigger because, uh, I mean, how, how do you do that at, at a political level where even the basic school, so how do you blur the line there? Because you kind of went there, but I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, uh, fortunately, I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of my time thinking about this. Um, <laughs> and I'm actually going to go back to a conversation I had recently with the, 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 one of the founders of Embark, uh, which was the school that I was mentioning. Um, his name is Miguel Gonzalez, and I highly recommend people reach out to him and have conversations with him about how they're doing this. Um, one of the things that he and I were just sitting around riffing on is he literally said, he said, you know, the way that, that we have to make this work is that we have to make bad business decisions so that we can make good school decisions. So an example of their bike shop, their bike shop in when, when they're not uh, they're not very busy during the day, they could it could just be staffed with one person. But they purposefully staff it with two people so that the second person can work with the students while the first person is running the shop, right? And so I think that sort of is a great example of uncomfortable commitments and uncomfortable agreements so that we can make learning work, right? Um, there, there are such schools uh, like I, I, Alpha in the article is an example of a school 
that just very candidly like lose I don't know the exact amount but I know that we lost money every year to 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 run a good school so I I think this is this is where I become pessimistic and where I wake up some days and I'm like nothing will ever change because it's going to take a commitment that is uncomfortable from all parties involved the second thing that I think you can do to, to blur the lines is when communities start to take control of the education. Um, I say, I'm going to say education system, but I think of the 19 families that bought that land in Georgia. They were like, yo, we're going to build our own city and we're going to build our own school system. I, re- I remember reaching out to them because I was like, the worst thing that you can do is build your own city and replicate the traditional public school system in your own city. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do, because they literally had what I wanted people, they have a, they, they have a blank slate, right? So I, I told them, like, the best thing that you guys can do is to pull your resources together and, like, very locally build the kind of, com- the kind of school community that your community wants, that is tailored to the needs of your community. Um, and that's very difficult to do. I think when you start playing on, like, sort of like a, a larger scale political Right. Like when you get in a like, let's just talk school districts. Right. A great example is uh, what's happening in North Dakota. Not a lot of people have heard about this, but there are there are some examples of education innovation in North Dakota that will make your eyes pop. Northern Cass ISD is the one that I think about. They have no grades in their school district. Um, they are they are on on a path to doing away with lecture, I believe. And they have made this method and this model make sense to North Dakota State and other local universities and have like shockingly high acceptance rates while having this very non-traditional public school district. What they did in that state was that every superintendent got together and they agreed on what innovation meant for them in North Dakota. And then there's different roadmaps, different pathways, but each public school district, Fargo is doing something different. Northern Cass is doing something different. They're filtering that through who their people are and, and they're building innovative solutions. Um, the, the superintendent of Fargo Public Schools was my assistant speech and debate coach when I was in high school, right? And then the, the, the superintendent of the neighboring district to Fargo is his wife. So like, like they're all interconnected in these really unique ways, but they're an example of like what we should be doing in Texas. And what they should be doing in California and what they should be doing in New York and Colorado, like at the public school level, politically and financially and socially, it just takes a commitment to figure out what innovation means for us, what education means for us and how we're going to make that plan forward. That's how I think you do it. I love that background and all the examples are uh, amazing. So thank you for bringing those. What, What I keep hearing is innovation you mentioned clean slate in, in that one example in Atlanta where they created their own city and, and then their own school system. Uh, the clean slate is not always there. In fact, we have a ton of legacy, right? Which is kind of, I think, the real challenge here. So how do we, certainly if we look at the physical building, right? The chances of going and wiping out all school buildings and starting fresh with something new is probably not going to happen. So what, are there some areas outside of physical infrastructure that perhaps we can see some innovation? And I don't know if we want to move to maybe how teachers teach or how children learn, how students learn, um, as maybe some ways where we can actually see some innovation. 
and yeah. either embrace the legacy or uh, it's it be it is feasible to break free from the legacy because of the way the innovation works. Yeah, I think I think this is a great question because this is one that like when I when I first got into building different things like building sort of the the more eye popping stuff, I went hard on the internet about it, and I have recently. I mean, look, I work for I. I I technically work for Teach for America now, right? Like I work for the Reinvention Lab, which is which is a, an, an organization that is is striving to create, you know, reinvention, innovation, all those buzzwords. But like at the end of the day, like I'm at I'm at the establishment, right? Like I'm at the the you know an organization that churns out traditional teachers, and so I I, I had to wrestle with this question for myself, which is like, yeah, what if you can't tear down the walls to your school? What do you do? Do you just throw up your arms and go, ah, well, I give up. I'll just keep, you know, I think that, I think this is powerful um, because what you do is you start to change, you start to change the way you think about traditional space and roles, right? So when you think about the role of the teacher, um, like I, I, there's experiments where there are people that are like basically going into traditional schools and having them just team teach, right? They're like, look at a, at a, at a very low bar, one of the things we can do is just say, hey, no student is assigned to one math teacher. You have four. And like you can choose any given day which one of those you go to. But you must choose one. And, and if the numbers are lopsided, like we reserve the right to shuffle them around. Um, but like if you feel like you learn better from Mrs. Johnson on a Wednesday, like go do that. Right. Um, there, there are you, you can flip orientations where um, instead of like. Instead of students being assigned to teachers, teachers can pitch what like what's cool about their class and what's cool about the way they teach. And and like literally you do it's like a job fair, but it's reverse, right? The students are walking around and the teachers are like, yo, like come to my chemistry class because we're like we're doing this experiment, or come to my my geometry class because we're gonna do this experiment. Um, and you sell students on a a stream of work, right? Um that takes a lot of humility on the part of teachers, which is generally very difficult because teachers for the level of experience um, and for the perceived expertise that we give them in society uh, often don't want to humble themselves enough to do things like that. Um, if you ever want to see a bunch of traditional teachers get upset, um, run a poll or ask them if they'll let students call them by their first name. Um, or just look up the TikTok videos where, where students are doing that, right? Like they're, you know, they're, they don't see students as their equals. So they would, that's a, that's a big leap for a lot of them. Um, but the other thing, like very simply, like one of the low bars is like cha changing your mind about what lecture is. There's so much data that tells us that lecture is inefficient yet. There, there's actually literally an article. I think this is U.S. News Report. I talk about this in one of my TED Talks. The article is called, uh, it's literally called, we know lecture doesn't work yet teachers keep lecturing anyway. Right, like, because there was no other title that they could give it, <laughs> because it was like it's that plain. Like, we, all the data tells us that lecture doesn't work. Like in lecture-based cl classes, students are like fifty-nine percent uh, more likely to fail in lecture-based classes compared to classes that do other things as their primary teaching tool, whether it be inquiry, whether it be debate, whether it be like the flipped classroom method, because like lecturers just talking at people, right? So like we know it's ineffective. And so I'd say like a low bar is to figure out like how you can present content in unique and exciting ways. 
maybe it's micro learning, right? Maybe it's teach that all these teachers that have rightfully em- embraced platforms like TikTok, like let me shout out Coach Curtis eighty eight, who is like, in my opinion, I'm calling him America's best U.S. history teacher that nobody knows about because my dude is like on TikTok creating thematic like very funny videos about history where like he plays all the characters and he's using those in his AP U.S. history class, right? The, I, don't even get me started on AP versus like, tr- like regular classes, but like he's doing it for the quote unquote smart kids, the quote unquote rigorous class, right? But like what you see is I've been watching this guy's journey since he had 500 followers on TikTok. Now he's got over half a million followers and He's got students around the country that are literally in the comments saying, oh, thank you for creating this video. It's going to help me pass this test or it's going to help me do this. Project. Right? He's figured out a new way to present content in ways that are digestible. But not only that, it's like it's on the digital medium that students care about. And so to me, five years ago, two years ago, I would have said that's not really innovation. Today, I think that's groundbreaking innovation. And I like, again, he's a person that I'll shout out to the ends of the earth because like a lot of teachers aren't willing to do that. Right. Um, one of the other ones that I'll, that I'll say is challenging, but I think is, is worth it is the idea of time commitments. Um, teachers carry a lot of arrogance when it comes to time and like, what is their time versus what is a student's time? Like, what if the classroom time isn't your time as a teacher? Like what if it what if that time wholly belongs to students and you guys are like you put yourself in the background? Or what if it truly belongs to both parties? Right? Answering the question like who's doing the learning? Is it like is the school day supposed to be students learning and teachers teaching, or is it supposed to be a community of people inside of a building that are learning together? And when you decide that, like when you say that and you actually carry that through, what does that mean for lesson design? Right? Like I would love to see a class where a teacher says, hey, like we, because let's be real, like most teachers are not content experts. Most teachers are using a scope and sequence and are having to teach themselves subjects as they go along because that's just the way school placements work, right? And that's, there's nothing to be ashamed about. It's actually a strength. Like what if you, imagine you, you walk into an English literature class and this teacher's like, hey, I've never taught this before. And so I'm going to assign groups and like next week, group five, it is your turn (laughs) to teach all of us, including me, because I have no idea what Beowulf means. Whatever resources you want to use, right? Like throw out traditional ideas of teaching, learning, assessment, all of that, right? Getting rid of grades is another one that that I can, I have a large soapbox about, but uh, I'll spare that for now. (laughs) Well, you're throwing a gazillion of ideas there that I absolutely love. <laughs> and, and every time I think, wow, that's so cool. And then I'm thinking, like, it's never going to fly. But but not because it shouldn't fly. It's because the system, exactly. I feel like it, it's it's just going to, you know, push it down. And, and you see these teachers that are doing these classes that you're talking about on TikTok or YouTube or whatever it is. They're not doing it on their paid time. They're doing it on on their spare time. They're, exactly. You know, and so they're gonna be these these incredible diamonds. And and I'm sure there's many of them that maybe don't even have the time, but they have the passion to do it. But they're it's kind of like you're trapped in, in the system. So on one side, I'm like, you know, again, how do you change things from the beginning? Sean knows I I love to say who 
who educates the educators? That's my my big question. Usually when we talk about cybersecurity, but even more now, like I mean, you you go into the system knowing that this is your curriculum, especially if you're in a public school, you can't really get out. I mean, I I don't want to get political now, but it pissed me off. A lot of things happening right now. Yeah, so, same, uh, same. But but you know, where 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 do you think it could be that? You know that that thing that make it click and say, "All right, this this is not sustainable anymore. It's not good." Yeah, um, I I think unfortunately that thing is going to be the teacher shortage. Um, I believe so. When Abbott Elementary, the television show, debuted, I watched the show and I thought, "Oh, this is incredible," and it is going to widen the teacher shortage because if I'm 17 or if I'm 22. And I watch Abbott Elementary. I'm like, man, this is funny. And that job sucks. Why would I ever do that? I also, I, I don't think, and I talk about this a lot because I'm, I'm actually working on a project where we're thinking about new product offerings at Teach for America outside of the traditional two-year teaching core. I, I believe that when, like, so right now I'll just say there's, there's two things. There's a teacher shortage and there's an administrative shortage. I have this BBC article up right now on my, on my, on my laptop um, that is talking about how like, yeah, it's not just that we can't get teachers to get into the classroom. We can't get school leaders. There are districts where you can't, you can't get people to say yes to a superintendent job. And so I think when the workforce problem becomes crippling, the, the public school system will have no option but to change. Um, I'm going to record this video today and, and post it today somewhere. Um, and I'll probably write an article about this, but I, I actually believe that school never changes because there's so many dollars and I think it is political, right? Like there's so many, there's so many politics and there's so many dollars tied up into keeping school the same. Uh, let's just talk about the textbook industry. The textbook industry is what a $96 billion industry. I think maybe it's down, maybe it's, maybe it's 93 or maybe it's 87, I, I, but it's an 80 plus billion dollar industry. And there are four companies that own 80% of that industry and one that owns like 70% of that 80%. So like Kaplan is the largest uh, textbook manufacturer and they own most of the market share. Kaplan is, and, and this is, people from Kaplan are going to hate me, but Kaplan is, is actually holding the public school system by its neck in the same place that it's always been because the, the learning materials that you use, they often, like we've talked about, we've gotten at this, uh, most teachers don't want to go create their own resources. Most teachers don't want to scour the internet because frankly, they're not paid to do that, right? There's no time to do that. What's handed to you. Well, all of these textbook manufacturers understand that. So they fight for market share to be able to hand them their materials. Right. So like during dur during COVID, when everybody had to work at home, you saw textbook manufacturers like, oh, here's a great school schedule. Have your kid at your house working on school from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Like, what are you crazy? Right? Like you had a chance to innovate. You had a chance to think about things differently. But the textbook industry was pushing people to think about them in the same way that they always have been. So I think because there's an incentive to sell more books and to sell more CDs and to sell more antiquated documents uh, with outdated text, like th the school system is staying the same. And if you're a school system that's spending $80 billion, 
right, per year on tax books, you, you, you have a very low incentive to do anything that doesn't involve that textbook. I mean, I almost got fired for not using textbooks. So, Mike, do you have to fox the request for the textbook? <laughs> probably so. That's, that's probably a thing, too. They probably don't use email. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an interesting point, and it, it, I hate to keep coming back to the, the, the legacy, but mm. I, I feel there, there's such a big structure where we all have to be compared against each other and we all have to right. follow these SATs and and everybody gets placed in the right place and the districts get placed in the right place and and I, I hearken back to a conversation we had with uh, an executive in an organization and she she wrote a book and she said I mentor a lot of people writing the book allows me to mentor so many more people at scale now, I know you just came off the textbook thing, so I'm going to move away from the writing book piece for a moment, but let's go to the, the TikTok. And I'm wondering, because you say we have a staff shortage and an admin shortage. I'm wondering in 2030, and, and as we get close to wrapping here, maybe some, some vision of some things you've seen now that can actually play a role in 2030, where we break free of the constraint of the infrastructure the requirement on so many people to do certain things in certain ways and get to a point where we can actually connect and engage with each other where perhaps we don't rely on so many people and the textbooks and the infrastructure in that way. Yeah. And I'll say this. I'm also like not anti books. Like I, 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 but I, yeah, not suggesting we go there, but yeah, <laughs> that yeah, wasn't yeah, my yeah. point either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, but this this sort of bleeds into what I'm saying is like, um, so I, I, I very very candidly, I just think the way forward here is like I ask myself this question a lot. It's like, what if the answer is not more human beings? And I don't normally say that a lot because out loud a lot because it freaks people out. Um, I also have an article that that went pretty far and wide where I wrote about the teacher versus tech debate and how like that conversation needs to be squashed because education is. Clear clearly a industry. It's clearly a human endeavor and it will remain so. But if you have a shortage of teachers, the immediate thing that I would do right now, like every, like if you're a school superintendent or a school leader and you're listening to this, the, the thing I would do right now is I would build a database of adaptive learning software. Adaptive learning software, basically they're apps, they're learning apps that work like Amazon, right? You buy a red shirt, Amazon algorithms like, oh, people who bought this shirt also bought these pants and these shoes. It just suggests content based on the input. So if I'm in the fifth grade and I'm doing math and I get four fifth grade concepts wrong, the most basic adaptive learning software will say, you probably don't know this concept. Let me suggest more of this concept. If I know it, it'll say, ah, let me suggest less of this content and more of stuff you probably don't know. The most basic ones. Um, I, don't, I, I actually think Khan Academy is fantastic. Um, because Khan Academy is, uh, by, by students' uh, own words, it's boring. Um, it is boring, but it drives you to complete content because it sets up mastery gateways, right? You can't move on to the next thing unless you have X amount of points. That's a low level of adaptivity, but it's more than you'd get from a traditional textbook experience, right? The most beautiful thing about, about adaptive learning software is that it requires a human being. 
right? Like, this is, I'm not suggesting that these apps are good enough to replace teachers. Let me tell you, like having built a school and built a homeschool program that uses adaptive learning software, none of them are good enough to replace a human being. The app, the people who make these apps, they don't even themselves believe that you can use adaptive learning software as the teacher. They believe it's a supplement to what happens in the traditional classroom. I'm suggesting that it becomes the teacher and the teacher's role changes to being guide, coach, motivator, helping you set goals, right? That means you need less teachers because you need less individual classrooms, right? Which means that you can pay people more, meaning that you can start to reverse the teacher shortage because if now all of a sudden, if in, if in the state of Texas, I can start earning $80,000 as a first year teacher, and I don't have to submit lesson plans and do all of these annoying things. I still got to deal with kids. I've got to, I've got to do goal setting, right? I may, I may have to do that for more kids, right? I may have to do it for 50 kids as opposed to standing up and lecturing 150, but like more at a time, right? Like I may have to do goal setting for 50 as opposed to 20. But like if, if, if I can make 80K doing that, I, I believe that there will be a segment of people who love to work with kids, but, but currently believe teaching is not worth it, that will come back into the field, what that will do is it'll allow you to change the, the barrier of entry into teaching, right? Whether it, whether it becomes higher or lower, my, my inclination would be that it would become higher and, and you'd have a d different type of person who's looking for that job and you'd be looking for a different type of person for that job. It is, it is not better or worse. You're just looking for a different type of individual who has a different skill set than a traditional teacher. I think that would help a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I go I go to this point, Mark. I know we're going to wrap here, but uh, just I mean I'm, I keep going back to the TikTok example. Yeah, and if, if that teacher were incentivized, compensated even mm -hmm. to do more of that, and other teachers, this may be the trick, were incentivized to use his content, right, right, then that that scales really well. And yep. the kids that the kids that like that will embrace it. And there may be other things that other teachers do kind of to your point earlier that you made where the, the teachers present, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Students select, well, that's the best way for me to get the most out of that, that engagement. Mm -hmm. And, and why does it have to be locked up in one school district or one classroom? Exactly. Why can't we open that up to everybody where everybody's contributing one big group? I mean, we do this in many other areas. Why can't we do it? Yeah, and I, and I think to 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 wrap, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to invite you officially to come back, and so we can keep this conversation going because Please. I feel like we miss a lot. We miss a lot of things that you put in the article, and and, and again, it, it's a big conversation. But I, I love the <laughs> yeah, apparently. So we can pick some and, and keep going. But what the, the final point for me is also, I'm going to wrap it with what you say here, which is. Having the teacher do something that is a little bit more what a teacher should be doing, which in my opinion, and this is not my words, actually been been said by many, a teacher teach you how to learn. I don't need the teacher that is gonna go in class and read me the book. I can I can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. <laughs> the guy that goes through or the or the gal that goes through the bullet points and and like, you know, I went through half of my college year just studying the, studying the book. And then I had some amazing teacher that really got me into something I was really interested to. But 
you can do that, but somebody needs to teach you how to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big role of the teacher and, and, mm-hmm. and get creative and don't be put in a cage and say, just go there. I mean, a monkey can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Yep, it's so. true. No, it's, it's, it's very true. I, I'll, I'll leave you with this story. It's like, so one, I think like there are, there, are, there are places where this is already starting to happen with content. Where like there's a democratization of like education content. I tried to build a platform like this called Guide, where we were trying to we were our goal was like we're going to beat TikTok to the learning space because TikTok doesn't they don't see what they have yet, and help creators education creators monetize, and and create new streams of income on the side. They still haven't done that well, um, but what I will say is uh, learning learn learning to learn is the ultimate life hack. Like if you can do that, there there's nothing. I, I met a guy who built a um, he built a headset that controls things with brain waves, um, and he's legally blind. He went into the military. He lost his eyesight, and I said, "Man, what's your secret? Like, how did you do this?" And the one thing he said he was like, "I learned how to learn. Yeah. If I didn't have that skill as a kid, he's like, I'd be a failure in life." Yeah. So that's, so that's a very good, very good point. Yeah, and I, I want to finish with that. And again, inviting you again to come back and please share with us all the reference that you, you throw in the conversation from your articles. Hopefully you can remember them all. <laughs> well, you know, some of them. And and then, of course, we're going we're gonna to put them in the notes for the episode. And, uh, and hopefully, as we always say, we hope this is a conversation that maybe didn't have many answers, but maybe you have more questions now in your, in your head because that's how we progress yeah. and, we, and we make changes. So, Mike, thank you so very much uh, for this conversation and hopefully many more. And uh, I don't know, keep learning. It's yeah. Yeah. good for thank, you. Thanks for, all, <laughs> thanks for all you're doing. This, this is an important, uh, important subject. No I appreciate the time. It's been fun. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.